my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear stop what are you thinking we can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting <clears throat> hi folks uh, Chris Roseberry here just want to remind you fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means we depend upon you your generous gifts and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, January 4th, 2012. Man, what are we going to do here? Yes, no, yes, yes, yes. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Listen, heresy is one of those things where it's uh, there's no such thing as an inert or non-reactive or um, a heresy that isn't, well, um, has consequences that could be eternal. Uh, if, if, have y'all y'all remember from back in high school? Now, some of you listening are high school students and college students, so uh, you're all familiar with that uh, that chemistry uh, table of elements thing. And uh, you know, uh, there's you, you, you what is it? They call them the noble gases. I'm I'm doing this from memory, but uh, th- there's a whole section of uh, of the table of elements of non-reactive elements. And the reason why they're non-reactive is because their el- their uh, electron shells are filled with electrons. Apparently, uh, when uh, an element has fewer electrons than is necessary to fill up their electron cloud, then it becomes reactive with other things, and it, it you know, and so it easily reacts with other elements to cause d- different compounds and molecules. So he- here's the idea: when you think about heresy, false doctrine, false teaching, things like that. There's no such thing as an inert, non-reactive heresy. 
Heresy, false teaching, and false doctrine always, always, always is reactive, and it reacts with and against um, the truth. It reacts against true sound doctrine, true sound teaching, and ultimately takes your eyes and your focus off of Christ. You know, one... As I was preparing for the program today, um, one of the things we're going to be looking at is uh, we're going to we're going to be looking at uh, Pat Robertson's latest predictions regarding 2012. Apparently, God has told him who the president is, and this is one of those times where I thought, you know what? Here's the deal: Pat Robertson does this every single year. He, you know, apparently there's some time during you know, from Thanksgiving to the end of the year. Some, you know, Pat Robertson apparently disappears into some kind of a prayer bunker and he shows God how serious he is. And then God begins talking to him conversationally. You know, they, they, they have a little banter back and forth and, and God begins to reveal to Pat Robertson things about the coming year. And, you know, there's thus saith the Lord prophecy t- talk coming out of Pat Robertson and, you know, the question I ask constantly is, what on earth does this have to do with the Great Commission? I, I, and I think that's a question I'm going to have to start asking. Maybe I, It might have to become one of my standard questions. What on earth does this have to do with the Great Commission? Okay, because the Great Commission, given to us by Jesus himself. So this, the Great Commission isn't like my idea. This isn't my opinion. No, it's this is Jesus' commissioning of the church in Matthew chapter 28. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them everything, you know, that I've commanded you, right? So that's what we're supposed to be doing. Okay, so the church is commissioned to do particular things. Um... It, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, to disciple the nations in everything that Christ has taught. That would be all of God's word by virtue of the fact that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. So the idea is, is that we're to teach the nations and disciple them in what the scriptures teach. This is why Bible study and theology is so important. Uh, teaching, instructing them in sound doctrine, rebuking false doctrine and heretics. But see, when heretics come along, what they do is they they claim to be some kind of super apostles or super disciples or something. You know, I mean, think about, I mean, so every time I hear that Pat Robertson has holed up in his prayer bunker and had one of these sit-down conversations with God and that God and him are talking, I'm thinking, good night, really? Serious, I'm supposed to believe this. And um, and I'm supposed to believe that, you know, God's really, really interested in having a conversation with Pat Robertson. Really interested in having a conversation with Pat Robertson. And, uh, yeah, and I could honestly say, I've never had a conversation with God like that, ever. I mean, does that make me a nominal Christian? Does that make me a carnal Christian, a non-supernatural Christian? Well, what happens is, is that... It well, it puts Pat Robertson on a level that's higher than me, higher than you, higher than well, just about everybody, because God just talks to him, you know. He you know, and so he's above everybody else. But then again, I keep coming back to this question that it was bugging me earlier. 
what on earth does Pat Robertson having a conversation with God where God is, you know, revealing to him, Nostradamus style, uh, you know, information about the upcoming year, what on earth does any of that have to do with the church's job of fulfilling the Great Commission? Answer, it doesn't have anything to do with it. In fact, if anything, it's a complete distraction away from the church's commission. And see, that's ultimately what false doctrine does. Bible twisting and false doctrine unhinges the church and individual Christians and teachers. It unhinges them and unbuckles them from the Great Commission. It unbuckles them from the Great Commission so that they claim that they've got their own specific, unique commission or vision or mission that's separate, aside from, different than the Great Commission. And that's what false doctrine does. It gets our eyes off of Christ. It gets us off of discipling the nations in sound biblical doctrine, sound biblical teaching that focuses on Christ and him crucified for our sins. And it instead puts our focus on the false teacher, not Jesus, our focus gets put on the false teacher. I mean, quite frankly, I mean, I don't see what Jesus and Pat Robertson have in common because I don't see Pat Robertson as a man whose life mission is to proclaim Christ in him crucified for our sins and to proclaim and defend sound biblical doctrine and help disciple people in sound historic Christian orthodoxy, I see Pat Robertson as a man who is drawing away disciples to himself and his unique vision, his unique um, uh, well revelation that he receives directly from God. And so what happens is when somebody does that in the Christian church, Jesus no longer becomes the man whom they are preaching about. And I mean by man, I mean the God-man. Instead, the person who they preach and teach about, well, is themselves. I hear a lot of about Pat Robertson when Pat Robertson speaks about him being found worthy enough, showing himself worthy to receive special information and revelation from God regarding what's coming up in the in the coming year. But I don't hear Christ and him crucified for our sins. I don't hear the clear clarion call of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name being proclaimed by Pat Robertson during his annual uh, you know, revelation of what God told him in his prayer bunker uh, event. And in fact, I, I can't say that Pat Robertson's ministry has really been marked by clearly teaching, proclaiming, and defending historic orthodoxy. If anything, uh, Pat Robertson's public ministry has been marked by him, well, teaching his unique insights and special revelations that he's received directly from God. Pat Robertson preaches really about Pat Robertson. And that, see, that's the thing. Um, you know, we're, we've been talking about the rash of narcissistic eisegesis 
uh, in a lot of the seeker-driven churches. Uh, you, know, you know, for instance, uh, Stephen Furtick, Perry Noble, and others. Uh, you know, uh, Troy Grambling in his worst Christmas sermon of all time, um, which I, I'm absolutely convinced that that's what's going to happen. It, on the last day, if somebody were to ask Jesus what was the worst Christmas sermon ever preached in all of Christian history, he would point to that one. He'd say that was the one. But uh, anyway, but the, here's the deal. This narcissistic eisegesis, um, when Troy Gramling takes the stage, who does he uh, preach about? Troy Gramling. When Perry Noble preaches, who does he preach about? Perry Noble. Now, granted, I mean, Jesus does from time to time have the honor of making a cameo appearance uh, in the preaching of, you know, men like Stephen Furtick and Troy Gramling and uh, Perry Noble and others. Um, but see, that's the thing. Um, Jesus is really kind of the bait on the hook. It, it's as if they've chopped Jesus up into little Jesus bits, and, and the Jesus bits are what cover the hook for their particular teaching. And so the question comes up, you know, what does any of this have to do with the church's commission given by Christ, the Great Commission? What does any of this have to do with it? How does what Stephen Furtick does and preaches and teaches um, how ultimately is that fulfilling the Great Commission? Because he preaches himself. He twists God's word. He teaches false doctrine that takes our eyes off of Christ and allegorizes texts about Jesus and, and so that he can twist them and make them about ourselves. The Great Commission isn't being fulfilled by false teachers. Why? Because there is no such thing as an inert non-reactive, and harmless heresy. There's no such thing. Heresy is toxic. Heresy is acid. Heresy is deadly. And heresy leads people to hell. Anyway, just wanted to get that off my chest. Want to get that off my chest. Now, just for those of you who are new to the program, I want to put a little disclaimer in here. Fighting for the Faith is a rough and tumble program, and I, I exercise Christian liberty and follow the examples of both the apostles, the prophets, as well as God himself in using the reductio ad absurdum and really biting humor in order to demonstrate the absurdity of a false doctrine. I don't sh I don't show professional courtesy uh to heresy uh oftentimes here. As a result of it it's it, it comes off as being politically incorrect and 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 uh in in it could ruffle some feathers. Um, the, the, think of it this way. Um it, those of you who've received the ebook on the uh, proper distinction of long gospel, well the use of reductio ad absurdum and humor um, to demonstrate the absurdity and folly of a false doctrine falls into the category of the law. In fact, I think from an apologetics point of view, apologetics is actually uh, is a function of the law. Uh, defending the truth and showing false doctrine to be false falls into the category of the law. And it's a necessary step in order to expose um, the breaking of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So it, it is. It is apologetics. Ultimately, is about smashing idols. And uh, this is this is not something that is politically correct, especially in our postmodern age. You're not supposed to be doing this. But yeah, I don't really bow to political correctness. So. If you're new to the program, you got to give it a little bit of time to get used to it because uh, what we do here has a tendency to uh, be a little bit shocking because 
a lot of people have become just so polite and politically correct that this is the kind of stuff that, well, it used to happen a lot more often, but doesn't happen as often today. So I, I kind of seem like that, you know, when when the parade turns right, I seem to be going left. Uh, it has nothing to do with politics, but I, you, you get what I'm saying. Anyway, so I just want to just so if you're new to the program, you got to give yourself a few weeks. Listen to the program, and you'll you'll get what's going on over time. But ultimately, this is about teaching you how to hear what people are saying, take their doctrine, summarize it, and then compare it to the biblical text to see if what they're saying can really be squared with what Scripture really teaches in context, or if what that teacher is saying is is twisting God's word, and as a result of it, pointing us away from Christ and working against the church's uh, commission to make disciples. So, yeah. Anyway, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on the program today. I got an email from a uh, missionary pilot that I would like to read today. Um, yeah, I have like the ultimate respect for missionary pilots. I, there was a time when I wanted to be an aviator. I wanted to be a naval aviator. I wanted to fly fighter jets. This was when I was uh, in high school, but that didn't pan out. So, um, yeah, it's always fun when I uh, receive an email from somebody who's an aviator and somebody who is using uh, his vocation as an aviator to support uh, the spread of the gospel overseas. Um, so uh, I got an email from uh, an, an, a missionary pilot that I would like to read today. Um, I have got audio from a recent exhibit that I put up in the Museum of Idolatry. The name of the exhibit is the Train Wreck of Praise. And, whoa, it's, um, here's the deal. When I play this thing, you're going to notice two really, really bad things about this video. Number one, um, the singing is just awful. Um, it looks like it was like a high school class project that two students concocted and put together at a religious institution in, I think, the Philippines. And I did some research and tracked it down. I think this is uh, associated with a Catholic school in the Philippines. And so on the one hand, you've got the like um, American Idol first few weeks of American Idol train wreck of bad singing kind of jaw, uh, jaw on the floor, that bad kind of thing going on. But don't let that um, distract you from where the real problem is with this uh, video. And, and that's the uh, the theology. In fact, uh, one, one listener today on uh, my Facebook wall described it as, um, uh, hang on a second, how did he describe it? <laughs> Hold on. Oh, yeah, here it is. He described it as purpose-driven Catholicism. So, yeah, this is this is one of those things that we, I put these out there so that you can hear. This is an example. This is a symptom. This is uh, evidence of just how bad things are in the church right now. And uh, and so don't let the the bad singing distract you from the bad theology because the bad theology is the thing that really matters. But uh, we'll be looking at that today. Uh, like I've promised, we're going to look at Pat Robertson's latest. Um, uh, uh, venture into uh, uh, prophecy. I've got a Carl Truman uh, piece I want to read today, and then I got another thing I may or may not get to, uh, but uh, we'll we'll get to that uh, when the time comes. So, without any further ado, let's dive into the program proper. Make yourself comfortable. Um, 
you know, because of the fact that um, this video that I'm going to be playing is so bad, I, I better play the warning. So hang warning. on. Yeah. Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. All right, we're going to ease you into it today. Okay, the subject of the email reads, Worst Christmas Sermon Ever. So that's the context of this. This is uh, in response to Troy Gramling's uh, Christmas Sermon, which I'm absolutely convinced is the worst Christmas sermon ever preached in the entire history of Christianity. Um, But um, the email is from a gentleman by the name of Glenn Grubb. Glenn writes, he says, Hi, Chris, I first heard of your broadcast while serving as a missionary pilot overseas. Stop. I, yeah, I just need to say this, and that is is that uh, the fact that you're a missionary pilot, you've, you've got a lot of respect points right here with me. And yeah, it, the movie line, what is it? You had me at hello? Dude, um, I cannot say enough about guys like you who literally take their vocation as, as aviator and pilot and use it uh in well when i i looked at the photographs that you had me uh, that you sent the link to uh, small airplanes small uh, aircraft um in 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 support of you know a, a basically a very dangerous mission to uh, spread the gospel overseas and so uh thank you for the work that you uh, you are doing in support of the spread of the uh, of the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ so let me continue with your email, though. He says, he says, I was trying to find some info on a guy named Rob Bell. We talk about him from time to time here. He says that was uh, that was uh, and Rob Bell's uh, teaching was taking our small community by storm through his books and video series. What I heard from your show on him was enough to confirm that pinch I felt in my stomach when I heard just a sampling of what was being taught by him by pinch. I don't mean the Mormon, what the Mormons call the burning in the bosom. Now, the, I'm glad you distinguished that. He says, uh, it, it's what pilots refer to when something is not right. Even though you don't have the full story, there is enough where your training begins to kick in and tell you something is wrong. In this case, it was my understanding of Scripture that kicked in and told me this guy was full of it, even though my friends were raving about him. Thanks for that. Uh, well, I... <laughs> Let us know how that went. I mean, were you able to talk to these people and share with them and warn them about the false teaching? Rob Bell is really, really um, dangerous. Anyway, 
He says, I was just listening to your summary of gory ramblings. <laughs> that would be Troy Grambling. He calls him gory rambling. He says, I was listening to your summary of gory ramblings Christmas sermon. I, I got this mental image as he began that you might appreciate. Like you, I think I have an overactive uh, imagination. So he started out, as you said, with the usual intro into the Christmas story, but then quickly jumped the shark. It was almost like I heard the sound you hear when you're heading up a roller coaster, the slow clicking and clacking as the coaster gains altitude, and then the screaming and the shrieking as it changes direction, and the heads, and then heads downhill rapidly. Of, of course, the roller coaster only simulates a, simulates a fall to your death. Actual danger is never really there. There are guardrails and systems set in place to protect you from any real danger. Now, if only sermons like this were like that, unfortunately, sermons like this are really dangerous. It's not a simulation, and there are no guardrails. Great point, Glenn. Well said. Yeah, you keep that overactive imagination, you know, uh, working because, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear some more of what your imagination is able to kick up because that's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. And see, that's the thing. There is no such thing as a safe heresy. And Troy Gramling, what did he do in that Christmas sermon? He took a text about Jesus and made it about you. What does that have to do with the Great Commission? Nothing. Actually, it works against it. And unfortunately, there are many, many people who are attending Christian churches who think they're hearing Christian teaching, who may even think they're Christians, but they may not be. And instead, they're on a roller coaster, and they're about ready to plunge to their death. The, the tracks go straight into the ground and straight on through to hell. So thank you, uh, Glenn, for your email, and thank you for your work as a missionary pilot, and may God grant you safety as you continue in your vocation. Okay, moving along. I do not have um, an intro music for this. Um, if I did, I, I would be tempted uh, but I would resist. I would be tempted, but I would not give in to the temptation uh, to introduce this with trumpets and fanfare. Uh, the, the reason being is, is that this qualifies as probably one of the worst, the worst um, examples of uh, YouTube praise attempts that I've ever seen. I mean, I've been saying for a while now, or maybe not a while, I may have mentioned it a couple of times, that uh, we're on the lookout for the next uh, Soul Seed song or Sun Seed, uh, Jesus is a Friend of Mine. We're, we're you know, we're, it's that catchy, awful, bad theology with the kitschy thing going on. Well, we've got a, we've got a close contender. The, uh, um, this is a, um, a, a class project that was put on YouTube uh, from a couple of students in the Philippines who attend a Roman Catholic church. And um, the name of it is Jesus Christ. And to kind of give you an idea of what's going on here, they've taken the music for Pokemon and they've um, <laughs> they've changed the lyrics, made it about Jesus, kind of, and... Um, and it, as like I said, one of my uh, one of the listeners on my Facebook wall today described the theology in this thing as purpose-driven Catholicism, and I I gotta warn you, it's bad, it's it, it's awful. 
Um, but don't let the cheesiness of the bad singing get in the way. The the really bad stuff is the theology. Listen to this because this is what these kids are being taught what Christianity is. Listen in. I want to be like Jesus Christ. No one ever does. To live by Him is my real best. To please Him is my cause. Oh man, <laughs> that's painful. Read the Bible, pray every day, so try us I can face. I will battle every day and wait for the glorious things. You're the way, truth, and light. The only way to be redeemed. With your help, I win the fight. It's always been my dream Jesus Christ Gotta fix you and me I know you're my destiny Jesus Christ Oh, you're my best friend You'll never leave me to You're my destiny I'll ne- Our hearts are so true, the Holy Spirit will pull me through. Teach me and I serve you, Jesus Christ. Gotta see them all. Jesus Christ has been my guide. Jesus is my guide. Oh, okay. Ever since I was saved, and in his teachings I will abide. I'll be blessed for I obey. The, the the line there was, I'll be blessed because I obeyed. Ugh. Now I will be set free, free from pain and grief. With Jesus in my life, my suffering will be brief. Yeah, so apparently because they obeyed, whatever suffering they'll go through, it'll be brief. I can't play anymore. I can't. If you want to see this, uh, it's at a little11.com. The, uh, the exhibit name is Trainwreck of Praise. But here, here, here's the deal. These young Filipino kids, I, you know, they're being taught purpose-driven Catholicism as a works-based religion that confuses the dis- proper distinction of law and gospel and has Jesus basically turning into our guide and the purpose of Christianity is so that uh, you, you can be pulled through whatever suffering or grief you might go through uh, you know, and, and get, you know, kind of get out of it quickly, uh, all because you've obeyed. That's not Christianity, but what's weird here is is that this um, this 
theology that's in this horrible video, and I mean horrible, is uh, is abysmal. It's abominable, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the Great Commission. In fact, it completely works against it, and that's what false theology does. All right, we're we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then... Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Get me the mall security? Thank you. <laughs> Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. <laughs> yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. <laughs> yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. Keep more of your money in your pocket 
Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Warning, false doctrine and heresy always takes the church and individual Christians off mission. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you don't already support us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, moving along here. I don't have music for this next segment, but uh, let's just put it this way. Um, every single year, um, the, the good... Uh, good. Um, Pat Robertson of uh, the 7... Is it the 700 Club? He, every single year, he comes up with, uh, well, something that just sounds like, uh, what? And what I mean is, is that apparently he he has a well a direct meeting with God. Um, he holds up somewhere uh, in a in a prayer bunker, and fasts and prays and and wouldn't you know it, God well he shows up, and um and talks to him. Well, at least that's what we're led to believe. And this happens, I don't know, sometime between December and November, so that God, in his conversation with Pat Robertson, gives him the skinny as to what's going to happen on the, in the upcoming year. Well, <clears throat> listen to this. Uh, here's Pat Robertson claiming God's talking to him again and has revealed to him the secrets of the upcoming year 2012. I uh, spent the better part of a week in prayer and just saying, God, show me something. And I'll share with you uh, some things I'll share with you. I think he showed me about uh, the next president, but I'm not supposed to talk about that. So I'll leave you in the... Oh, okay. So God told him who the next president's going to be, but he's not supposed to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, a simple way to test whether or not he's a false prophet or not would be to uh, require Pat Robertson to uh, have one of those certified sealed envelopes, um, you know, created where he, you know, he'll write on an index card. The next president of the United States is going to be write the name 
slip it in the envelope and then put that envelope in a sealed envelope and, you know, have it sealed and, you know, um, yeah, and, and then we'll open it up on election night and see if he was right. Uh-huh. Dark. <laughs> Probably just as well. Probably just as well, but I think I know who it's going to be. All right. I'm going to read just what I wrote down, and I'm as if I'm hearing from the Lord these words. You're- uh-huh. So again, my question, uh, the question, I guess the theme question for today is, what on earth does this have to do with the church's call to fulfill the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing uh, them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all, all that I've commanded you? Hmm. This seems like it's off mission to me. Does this, does this not seem like it's off mission to you? country will be torn apart by internal stress. A house divided cannot stand. Your president holds a radical view of the direction of your country, which is at odds with the majority. Expect chaos and paralysis. Your president holds a view which is at the odds with the majority. It's a radical view of the future of the country, and so that's why we're having this division. This is a spiritual battle which can only be won by overwhelming prayer. The future of the world is at stake because if America falls, there's no longer a strong champion of freedom and a champion of the oppressed of the world. Mm-hmm. So if we don't pray, the whole world's going to come crashing down. Well, there you go. I mean, the future of the world depends upon you. What kind of God is this? There must be an urgent call to prayer. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then uh, the Lord said, a time of maximum stress and peril greater than at any time since the CBN ministry began. This country will begin disintegrating. Now, I thought, when did we start this place? I started uh, CBN in, in, I think, 1960. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had... Uh, uh, you think of all the things that went on. You have the assassination of president, the assassination of Martin Luther King. You've got a war in Vietnam. You've got all these things. He said it's a worse stress than before. So I'm saying, God, uh, let me give you some, some, some suggestions, and you tell me if any of them is right. You know, <laughs> Pick one. So I said, is it an EMP blast? No, that isn't it. Uh, is it a cosmic or solar radiation blast? No. Well, I'm... <laughs> Glad that we're not going to have an EMP go off you know, in the United States or some solar radiation blast. I'm glad those are off the docket. Uh, is it the Mayan galaxy alignment? <laughs> no, it's not that. Which will shock many. <laughs> is it Iranian or North Korean nuclear threat? No. Is it an earthquake or a volcano? No. Is it a massive power failure? No. Well, why is God playing games with him? You know, come on, see if you can guess. What is it? It's an economic collapse. And God said, and I quote, this is not my judgment. They are bringing it upon themselves. There you go. So weird. Okay. Because yesterday, uh, Dr. Maiden from the Patricia King gang basically you know, made it sound like everything's coming up roses. You know, remember his uh, one size fits all uniprophecy here. I mean, God has talked directly to Pat Robertson and basically said you know we're in deep kimchi um hmm is it me or is there it doesn't seem like there's any way to reconcile the two prophecies maybe one is hearing from god and the other isn't or maybe both aren't hearing from god 
Again, I just kind of ask the question, what on earth does this have to do with the church's commission to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations and to make disciples of all nations? Um, I mean, were you discipled in, in uh, anything regarding the doctrine and teaching of Jesus Christ as a result of this supposed direct revelation from God to Pat Robertson regarding the, you know, the, you know, him giving him kind of cryptic warnings about what's going to unfold in the year 2012. Yeah, I, I, I'm not seeing anything that has to do with Christian discipleship here at all. Okay, moving along. Oh, by the way, I, I didn't talk about what we're going to talk about in hour number two today. Um, I'm going to build off of yesterday's program. Yesterday's uh, sermon review uh, it was entitled, I called it, uh, Narcissistic Evangelism. And uh, what I thought I would do is build off of that and by playing a sermon that I think gives us the quintessential, the uh, the pinnacle example, if you would, of uh, of uh, of a narcissistic evangelistic sermon. And uh, so uh, this past Sunday, uh, Doctor Ergen Kaner, or is it Connor? Uh, er, I'll just call him out, Doctor Ergen Kaner, um, formerly of Liberty. Um, uh, anyway, uh, seminary. He um, uh, he preached a sermon at uh, Matt Fry's church, uh, C three, and um, this was a perfect example of what it sounds like when somebody believes that their story is the gospel. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, you know, we might even bring in some of uh, uh, Dr. James White's. Uh, cogent research and uh, re- an analysis regarding Dr. Kaner's ever-changing story regarding his testimony. So that's uh, coming up in hour number two today. All right, moving along. Okay, from the Ragamuffin Soul blog. This is a weird piece. Uh, the uh, headline reads, Don't chase your dream, make your dream chase you. Yeah, this is by Carlos Whitaker. I think we've mentioned him before. Uh, he's a uh, seeker-driven uh, music guy, uh, you know, and, uh, and I think he even has some albums out. And uh, you can find this at ragamuffinsoul.com, uh, the, uh, and this is from January 1st of this year, 2012. And uh, from time to time, I feature stuff here on the program that the only way I could describe it is, uh, what on earth does this even mean? So the headline is, don't chase your dream, make your dream chase you. And this dream chasing stuff is a common theme in a lot of today's so-called relevant preaching. And I have no idea what it means, but see if you can make sense of this, okay? Um, uh, Carlos Whitaker writes, he says, it is January 1st. There is a big dream you desire to get this year. Let me think about that. Um, Nothing's coming to mind, but okay, sure. Um, And he says, I'm 100% completely convinced that you can get it. You are? Well, okay. So here is how I plan on getting mine. And I think you, (laughs) and I think it can help you get yours. Yeah, that's scary talk there. I I'm not, I don't know if I want to get mine. Anyway, he said, all right, so uh, so here's how I plan on getting mine. I think this will help you get yours. I'm not some dream architect, but common sense proves better than books and seminars sometimes. Okay, so here's so here's what you need to do. If you if you got a big dream that you really desire this year, 
Carlos Whitaker, a uh, praise and worship guy, a seeker-driven praise and worship guy, wants to help you uh, get your dream because he thinks he's got this all figured out. So number one, make your dream chase you. Don't chase your dream. So do I play hard to get with my dream? So if I see my dream over there in the corner looking at me, do I kind of turn away and maybe act like I'm not interested? I mean, so that, you know, my dream will, you know, all of a sudden rise to the challenge of the chase, you know, that kind of... So you don't want to chase your dream. You want your dream to chase you. Okay. Okay. So how do I get... How does that happen? So he says, all right, so here's what you do. So take your dream and put it on your phone home screen. Okay. Uh, with a Sharpie, uh, put it on your bathroom mirror or tattoo it on your wrist. Hang it from your rearview mirror. Laptop screensaver, make that your dream. And An and alarm on your phone three times a day. Whatever you can do to have it chase you down and stay in your face, do it. So wait a second. Um, That's not really making my dream chase me. That's me chasing my dream, but making it look like my dream's chasing me instead. That the, it's kind of an artificial chasing going on there. Huh. Weird. Okay. So all right, but so so if you really have a big dream that you want to accomplish this year, make your dream chase you. And so there's ways to do that. Now, so number two, um, you need to realize that owning the dream uh, beginning is just as powerful as owning the dream ending. I don't know what that means. <laughs> okay, so I got to own the dream's beginning. Okay. Um, all right. So here's what he writes it, uh, under cat uh, section two: realizing that you, you owning the dream beginning is just as powerful as owning the dream ending. Just because you don't own the end of the dream, doesn't mean that you don't own the dream. Okay. What does ownership mean in this sentence? Um, it says, if you know that you will have more swag when you get your dream, then walk with swag from the kitchen to the car. Yeah, I don't see how that's going to help anything. I mean, if anything, it would just really open me up to being mocked and ridiculed by my neighbors. Yeah, I see the lady across the street going, did you see how Chris... Swagged his way from the front door to the pirate Christian radio. What's that swag all about? Yeah, I think the the ladies in the neighborhood might misconstrue that as me maybe potentially hitting on them or something. But you know, anyway. So no, I won't be swagging my way to my car anytime soon. <sighs> Man, okay. Next. All right. It says all right. So if you know you will have more money when you get your dream, so then start caring for your money like you should and will. Okay, if you know you will have more time for your kids when you get your dream, well, then then make them wonder where all the time came from now. Okay, if you know you will sing in front of thousands at the end of your dream, well, then sing in front of 20 and blow their minds. <laughs> I guarantee you, if I <laughs> when I sing for anybody here at Fighting for the Faith, it 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 boggles their minds for sure. It painfully. Um, okay, so okay, so, so this is all about making your dream chase you. So number three, surround yourself with dream kerosene and not with dream extinguishers. Um, okay, um, is dream kerosene a substance that I can purchase at like uh, Walmart, uh, Lowe's, Home Depot, uh, Menards? Um, 
is this a legal substance? And uh, and um, and then what does a dream extinguisher look like? And um, how do I avoid that? Okay. Anyway, he says, when you have a dream, it is important that you surround yourself with people that will help your dream explode and not put out your dream. So I'm assuming that a dream explosion here is a good thing, not a bad thing. Okay. Because, you know, I, I, I could just see, you know, trying to explain to my wife. Okay, so here's the deal. I got this dream and I'm trying to get it to chase me. So I swagged my way to the car the other day. And uh, and wouldn't you know it? There was some dream extinguisher coming from you know from one of the, the the lower quadrant of our neighborhood, and so I quickly got into the car, and you know and applied some dream kerosene to my dream, and poof, it exploded. And my wife would immediately ask the question, "Well, when you applied the dream kerosene to your dream and it exploded, is that a good thing that it exploded? I'm, I, am I supposed to say yes? My my dream exploded. It was amazing." <laughs> I mean, it was pretty colors and everything. It was just like fireworks. Anyway, <clears throat> so Carlos continues. He says, there are people who want to constantly doubt your dream. Oh, those terrible people. There are people who want to dilute your dream. Yeah, you don't want to dil- diluted dreams out there. And there are people who want to put out your dream. Yeah, apparently your dream's on fire. And there are people who want to laugh at your dream. Not only do you need to not surround yourself with these people, you need to completely disconnect from any of them having any sort of conversation about your dream. Okay, so you dream talk dream talk is off limit with people who are dream dis, ex, the extinguishers. Okay. So it's not because they don't love you, most of them probably do. It's because it's more because they want to protect you, protect you from the hurt of not achieving your dreams. This does not make them bad people, it just makes them bad dream people. Mhm. So, so take these three points or leave them, but I'm going to blow your minds this year by achieving more than I ever have imagined, and I'd like you to blow my mind, so start running. Your dreams are coming. There you go. And um, this from one of the the premier seeker-driven praise and worship guys out there, uh, Carlos Whitaker and his website, ragamuffinsoul.com, and I did in this is supposedly, you know, a blog from a guy who does Christian ministry. And my question is, what on earth does this post about chasing your dreams and or anything like that have anything to do whatsoever with the church achieving its, you know, its mission, you know, the Great Commission given by Jesus? I, I, I don't even think it makes any sense, and it seems awfully narcissistic to me. Doesn't it seem narcissistic to you? Anyway, I just thought I'd pass that along, but I mean, I mean, more and more I'm starting to see stuff like this and just scratch my head and go, what on earth does this have to do with anything that remotely has anything to do with Jesus Christ, at least the Jesus of the Bible? Anyway, so there you go. And, and, you know, and there's, you know, by the way, there's a growing number of Christian churches out there with the name Dream Center associated with it. And um, it makes me wonder if they're teaching this kind of stuff, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the biblical gospel or or fulfilling the Great Commission. We continue. From Carl Truman's blog, Reformation21.org. Carl Truman, a reform guy whom I have the ultimate respect for. Um, Carl Truman, he's got a blog post entitled, A Forgotten Text, why is that? I wonder. Now, let me kind of set this up for you so you understand what's what we're, what it is we're talking about. Um, if you're not aware, uh, then you uh, well, I probably should make you aware. 
Mark Driscoll's new book, Real Marriage, has hit the bookstores. And it's all the talk on Twitter and the blogosphere, and everybody's talking about it. Chalice has written a uh, a review of it. Denny Burke of uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, has weighed in on it. And i got to tell you, the guys who I have theological respect for who have uh, who have shown themselves to be careful exegetes of God's word and who have shown themselves to be faithful proclaimers of the biblical gospel um those guys have all been panning the book and um I'm not going to get into too much of the gory details regarding the book but let me just put it this way Chally's point is that he talks about marriage in a way that's unhinged from the biblical gospel valid criticism uh, Denny Burke talks about um, the. Uh, there's a chapter in there um, you know, that uh, that's asks the questions: What things can married people do in the bedroom? And apparently, um, Driscoll does a miserable job. Miserable. Uh, Driscoll and his wife do a miserable job of handling that topic. And there are some suggestions in there that I don't even want to repeat. But uh, let me make a quick observation, and then I want to read Carl Truman's piece, okay? Quick observation, just kind of from a marketing point of view. Um, the interesting side story regarding um, Driscoll's new book. This is also the week when Ed Young of, uh, of Fellowship Church uh, out there in you know the Dallas-Fort Worth area the guy with the um the the private jet you know that the, who denied that he had a private jet that guy um his new book sex experiment is supposed to hit the stores any day now and what i think is kind of interesting so all of a sudden we've got the release of two major um books by two guys who are really considered stars in the secret driven movement ed young and mark driscoll uh, both on the same topic and I just want to make a quick prediction. I have not been, I, I did not have time this year to spend a, a week in my prayer bunker asking God to, you know, give me some hints about what was coming up in 2012. So I got to completely wing this prediction um, and just, just give you my gut level thoughts. I, I know it's kind of disappointing, but um, so there's no divine intervention going on here at all. So, but my prediction uh, for what's going to happen here is that, um, Ed Young's book is going to flop, while Driscoll's book, uh, because it's already garnered so much attention, is going to literally stay at the center of the conversation, and few people, if any, will really pay attention to Ed Young's sex experiment book. So, um, yeah, just yeah, I don't, I just don't think the seeker-driven world can really. It's I don't think it's wide enough to be able to handle two sex books at the same time. Just saying. Anyway, so that was my, you know, non-divine intervention prediction regarding what's going on here. Side note to the whole story. And by the way, I, with probably the exception of this Carl Truman piece and maybe any other cogent, short, brief to the point stuff about uh, Driscoll's, I'm not really going to cover either book, the contents of it. I just don't get it. I don't understand what the seeker driven's preoccupation with sex is. It's like they're a bunch of junior high kids. Maybe it's because sex sells and it's a marketing thing. But anyway, Carl Truman's um, post, a forgotten text, a why is that Why is that? I wonder, that talks about what I think is probably the right 
thing to talk about regarding books like this. Carl Truman writes, he says, I wonder if there is a more neglected text in the New Testament in the current revival of interest in Reformed theology than Ephesians chapter 5, verse 12, which, by the way, reads, For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Okay, that's the verse. In reaction to the taboos of old-style fundamentalism, there is surely a danger that we have lost all sense of what is biblically appropriate when it comes to engaging the wider world. I had my own first-hand experience of this a few years ago when I suggested on this blog that it was perhaps not appropriate for Christians to see the film Milk, which was not only a highly fictionalized account of the life of Harvey Milk, but also included, according to the reviews, sexual scenes of an explicit and inappropriate nature. I still remember the teacup-sized storm of protest as various Christian culture vultures treated me to lectures on how my narrow-mindedness was not going to stop them using milk as a means of witnessing to friends. Uh-huh. There's a sermon out there on milk? But none of the outraged evangelists addressed Ephesians chapter 5, verse 12. More recently, the very public preoccupation in the evangelical world with what are apparently pretty explicit treatments of the subject of sex have brought to my mind Ephesians chapter 5, verse 12 once again. Paul, of course, was no legalist. He affirmed free grace and Christian liberty. Yet, Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 5, verse 12, which says, and let me read it again, for it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. So, what does it mean? Well, it actually means exactly what it appears to mean. You really do not need a postdoctoral qualification in Second Temple Judaism to crack this verse. Here is how Peter O'Brien explains this verse, and if you have never read Peter O'Brien by everything you can by him, a Christian gentleman, a churchman, and a masterful exegete. He writes, quote, The early expression, the fruitless deeds of darkness, in verse 11, is a general one and could include sins done openly as well as those committed secretly. Such a description focuses on their evil character. They belong to the realm of darkness and the fact that they are utterly futile. These works are the sexual vices, perhaps even perversions mentioned in verse 3 not immoral pagan religious rites, as some have suggested. They are now described as things that are done in secret. Those who commit them, i.e. the disobedient of verses 6 and 7, do not want their sins to be brought out into the open, see John chapter 3, verse 20. But their dark deeds are so abhorrent, Paul asserts, that it is shameful even to mention them, much less to do them. He utterly repudiates these sexual sins, but desires to convey their seriousness without mentioning the details of their depravity. Paul and his readers knew what they were, and he will not dignify them by naming them. Instead, he wants the light of the gospel to shine through the readers' lives and expose these deeds for what they are. Truman then writes, O'Brien's explanation is as clear as Paul's original statement, though he brings out beautifully the fact that the light of the gospel is to be the focus. The gospel is the light. It is truly 
beautiful. To wake in the morning and to know that whatever darkness lurks within our hearts, the light of Christ is sufficient to dispel it all is surely glorious. Why would one even want to dwell in any detail on the deeds of darkness when one could spend time reflecting on the magnificence of God uh, manifest in the flesh? I have often in the past stood with those who laughed at what we regarded as ignorant, unsophisticated taboos of the older generation. But now I worry about the ease with which the rising generation talks explicitly of the fruitless deeds of darkness in the name of cultural engagement, fear of being thought passé or simply a desire to slough off the legalisms of their fathers in the faith. You can, you can, after all, get to heaven without ever having been, having ever seen an R-rated art house movie or having enjoyed a, a spectacular love life. So here's a question: Would it make any difference to you? Any difference at all to the way you talk, to what you watch, to the way you engage culture, if Ephesians five twelve had never been written? Yep, I think that gets to the heart of it, and I think he makes an important point. Much of all this sex talk really is all about cultural engagement, and it also seems to be a distraction away from the gospel. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Christian. When we get back, we got an Ergen Caner sermon. That's a first year. Yeah. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. this up (laughs) 
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via C3 Church, Clayton, North Carolina. This is where Pastor Matt Fry normally presides, but presiding on this sermon today is uh, Dr. Ergen Kaner. Dr. Ergen Kaner of, um, well, he's famous for um, enhancing his testimony, if you would. The reason I picked this sermon is because it is the quintessential pinnacle example of what it is that Tom Skiles was describing yesterday. Evangelism that is all about telling your story rather than telling Jesus' story. Oh, this is for sure that. This is um, this is Ergen Kaner telling his story, not Jesus' story, but his story. And boy, he's really gifted at telling his story. He's a good communicator. You'll hear something about the cross in there. I mean, I think it's kind of obligatory to do that. But my question is, is this really even evangelism? Uh, oh, and he'll try to preach from a text, too, because you know, this is a sermon. Uh, let me kill the music. So without any further ado, here is uh, Dr. Ergen Kaner uh, from his sermon this last Sunday at C3 Church, Clayton, North Carolina. Here we go. Um. You guys are was very gracious of you, but uh, you will never know uh, what this Sunday means to me. He's right. I have family here, but I am not that family. Uh, I married into it. My full name is Ergun Mehmet Janer. Turkish, immigrant, Yankee. Came to America, uh, settled in Columbus, Ohio, Sunni Muslim, and raised a Sunni Muslim, and lived as a Sunni Muslim until I got saved in 1982. And uh, God, through, through uh, an amazing circumstance, God reached into my life and saved me, and I started going into education, and then I felt like I'm supposed to go into ministry. Next thing I know, I'm in North Carolina. <laughs> the only church that ever called me, the first church, just about the only church that ever called me as a pastor, Franklin County, Wood. The town of Wood, North Carolina, 115 people, two and a half miles outside of Centerville. And uh, eight people voted on me. And wasn't unanimous because it happened to be a Baptist church and they fight all the time. Weird. I have video. I won't play it, but uh, of him saying there were 18 people in the church. It got smaller now. Hmm. And it is not only where I pastored, uh, but it was where I fell in love. And my wife, who will be here in the second service, Jill, uh, has got her mama's people living Clyde's Chapel. Her daddy's people, Princeton. Her daddy's a cotton farmer from Possum Kill. So you could imagine how thrilled he was when the towel head showed up at the door to date his daughter. Uh, not knowing what to expect, I assume. I was his pastor. But they will be here. They, the whole clan. There's like 7,000 cousins who are coming here to the second service. And it's awesome. I mean, it's a blessing to me because this is, number one, he's Matt Fry. The, the, the ministry that God has given him the, the, and the, the fact that you guys are such an example to us through the ark and through the church planning 
it, it's, it's huge. He was Matt Fry to me before I ever knew him as Matt Fry. He was the Matt Fry. And to be able to be here with him now is huge. Secondly, he's me if I was in shape. <laughs> he's got the guns. And he just looks right. He's like fasting to, to be what? You're, you're already in shape. It kills me. I'm, I'm wearing double spanks just so I can fit in the shirt. <laughs> um, that's a horrible thing to say, isn't it? Look, um... <laughs> so, Boy, he sure does have them rolling on the floors. Yeah, okay. So embarrassing. It, it, it rounds out even further. I got family. This county. Jill and I, our first date was to the Ham and Yam Festival. You guys ever been? 1992, it was 93. But one of your staff members is kin to me and he doesn't even know it. Is Painter in here? Dude, we're kin. My wife's people are painters. The Jack Painter and all the rest of them, and I don't know any of them, which makes it horrible. This is why I was a horrible pastor and this is why I'm a professor now. Number one, I'm a grump. You need to hear me, because grumps don't exist in the uh, 915 service. You come to the 915, especially after being up to see in the new year last night, you are a happy morning person. It's awesome. Just don't come around me. Because I'm not a, I'm a grump. I'm a Christian grump. A Christian grump is defined as uh, you love everybody because you're saved. Uh, you just don't like most people. And that's me. And I will be a great comedic delivery. I, I mean, you should do stand up at my table with my son Braxton and you will come up and talk and you'll be like, hi, I'm so happy. I run into you. I will point it out to you that you are a happy morning person because the really happy ones I teach all the time. These girls that come to our college, Dr. Kenner, what a joy it is. And I'm so happy to be here. And oh my God, will you pray with me? You're the ones at church camp who get us up at four o'clock in the morning. You guys, let's get up. Oh my goodness. Rise and shine and give God. I will punch you in the throat. Because I'm not the morning person. But that made me a horrible pastor because early service just wasn't my thing. And my wife is perpetually happy. My wife is that happy morning person. Which brings me to this. Um, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. All right, turn there. You want to be there when he starts, uh, when he eventually gets to it. Yeah. Here's what Jill and I discovered after being married 17 years. We ain't got nothing in common. <laughs> not, not, not one thing. We, we, we are the most disparate people. She is country, but she is sophisticated. I'm an idiot. <laughs> she can fix anything. Her daddy can fix anything with duct tape and bailing wire. And if you ever see me under a car, I've been hit. <laughs> I am the... I, I, uh, that's a great line. If you ever see me under a car, I've been hit. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, great. Yeah, don't you think it odd that uh, he's using sermon time to do stand-up comedy? I am useless. I am useless. 
I can't do squat. And, and Jill can do anything. She's tiny, you'll see her, and I'm this. <laughs> we don't have anything we agree on on television, movies, music. Last night, bringing in the new year, watching Moonshiners. <laughs> I love reality television. I need to tell you this because... I I'm so glad you do. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. You, you got anything to say about Jesus? This leads me into our text and leads me to what I'm preaching to you today, but I love reality television. Don't like all reality television. I don't care about fat people singing. And I don't want to see anybody dance. I could care less. I, I like American Idol, but only the first couple of weeks. When the crazies come out. When the guy dressed like a chicken is singing Lil Wayne. I love that because I'm a grump. Wood Baptist Church in Wood, North Carolina, in Franklin County, right at the corner of Halifax and Franklin and Nash, they invited me as their pastor not to sit on the stage for that reason, the American Idol reason. See, I like American Idol for the same reason I love all recitals and cantatas, and I'll go to every one of them because the same reason I go to NASCAR. Somebody's going to wreck, and it's going to be glorious. Some kid's going to pull her dress up over her head. Some kid's going to pick his nose, uh, forget their lines. I love that stuff. I love that stuff in church. And I laugh when that stuff happens, which is why they asked me to set off the stage. See, some of y'all have the mercy gift. And, and, and I'm going to show you my favorite moment in church. It's totally ridiculous, but this is my favorite moment. It's when the soloist is going to sing right before the pastor preaches. And they give you that little speech that they've practiced. You know what I'm talking about? They've practiced all week. They know exactly what verse they're going to say. Um, you know, before I sing this song, I'm going to, I'm going to, matter of fact, I'll do this. I'll show you exactly my favorite moment. Um, before I sing the song, uh, you know, in Psalm 174, it says, um, Jesus was my homie. And this week as I was singing and practicing this song, it really touched me. I'd like you to listen to the words and not the music. Um, I hope it blesses you. Y'all know? Silence. What does this have to do with making disciples and teaching the word? When all you hear is the cussing of the sound guy and that, right? Because something didn't work and it's clicking or something. And all those eyes are on them. And if you have the mercy gift, we know you. Because you're the one in church who goes, bless him. Mm, amen. You're trying to give him a little bit of, you know, like this. I'm the one laughing at you. Because it's happened to me too. Jill and I like different types of reality shows for the same reason. She likes the things that are encouraging, and I like the things that I feel like make me feel better. Dog. Dog the bounty hunter. Here's he is really good at telling his story, isn't he? Isn't this what Tom Skiles wants? I mean, you know. He's engaging. He's got people's attention. He's speaking right to their hearts. He's telling his story. Uh-huh. Here's my 2012 resolution. 
One time, I want to go shirtless with a leather vest. And a six-foot-long mullet hanging off the back of my head. I love me some dog, man. Anything with the word swamp in it. Anybody else? Swamp people, swamp loggers, swamp... Oh, we went to see Troy through, through Louisiana. Shoot them, shoot them, Elizabeth. I can't understand a word they say. There needs to be captions. And if you are related to these people, God bless you. Translate for the rest of us. Because who are we going to go get the alligator over there? <laughs> don't you call me Elizabeth. Uh, my mama call me Elizabeth. You call me Liz or Lizzie, but don't you call me Elizabeth. Shoot them, shoot them a little bit. I love that. Auction hunters. Storage wars. Then there are shows that I watch because they horrify me. Which my wife thinks is absolutely ridiculous. Toddlers and tiaras. We sure are getting a lot of information about Ergen Canner's uh, television taste. I mean, this is just so funny and it has nothing to do with the Bible. You ever seen, you know what I'm talking about? If you've never seen it, one time, just watch it once. 800 pound moms kicking their little kids up on stage. <laughs> Get up there and dance, Lucy. <laughs> Hoarders. Anybody else? Here's why it freaks me out. The house looks absolutely normal. And then you open the door, and they've been collecting 8,000 jars of hair, you know, or, or the house is to be condemned. And the thing is, is that it, part of my dementia is that... Um, I sometimes watch those shows because I want to feel better about me. You know what I mean? They're human train wrecks. I will watch that and go, oh, you know, I haven't vacuumed in a couple of years, but I'm not as bad as them. I don't want to settle for that. That's sort of a bad, you have a bad day and you come home and you turn that on and you feel better about yourself, but only by comparison. I don't, I don't, I don't want to live this year that way. I don't, want to, I don't want to feel better about myself by comparing myself to other people who are unfortunate. That's not me getting better. It's just me comparing to somebody worse. It's like me making friends with a lot of fatter people than me to make me feel like I'm in shape. It doesn't work that way. I want to show you somebody. I want to show you somebody who, who, who lived by the principle of being better rather than just comparing yourself to worse. Okay, so that's the setup for the transition, supposedly, into the Bible teaching portion of whatever this speech is. Um, so we're, he's going to show us somebody from the Bible who didn't compare himself to other people, but lived by being better. Mm-hmm. Already I'm really skeptical about the, um, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the teaching at this point, because I'm not familiar with any passage like that. Hmm, maybe he's going to try to shoehorn a passage into making it sound like that's what it says. 2 Kings, chapter 6, and the Word of God says this. Um, we'll pick it, up in, pick it up in verse 8. The story, by the way, is about Elisha. When the king of Aram, uh, that's the king of Syria, 
The king of Aram was at war with Israel. He, he would confer with his officers and he'd say, okay, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately, Elisha, the man of God, he, he would warn the king of Israel, now don't go near that place. For the Arameans are, are planning to mobilize their, their troops there. And so the king of Israel, he would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. That's Elisha. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on alert there. You can imagine this made the king angry. And pick it up in verse 11. The king of Aram was very upset over this. He, he called his officers together and he demanded, Now which one of you is a traitor? Who's been informing the king of Israel about my plans? They answered quickly, It's not us, my lord and king. One of the officers replied, Elisha, the prophet of Israel. He tells the king of Israel, Even the words you speak in the privacy of your own bedroom. The king answers, Go and find him where he is, the king commanded. So I can send troops to seize him. And the report came back. Elisha, well, he's a Dothan. He was a little further north. And so one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots, many horses, to surround the city. Verse 15. Uh, are you hearing anything about this being an example of somebody who lives better rather than compares himself to other people? Do you think that's why God the Holy Spirit wrote had this written? When the servant of the man, the attendant, the young man, the actual word is young boy, the assistant, if you will. When the yeah, the assistant, if you will. Yeah, well, it sounds so scholarly, the way he's broken this young boy word down for us. The servant of the man of God got up early the next morning, and he went outside. There were troops, there were horses, and there were chariots everywhere. Oh, sir! That's what the New Living Translation says. Other translations make it sort of an exclamation. It's alas or oh me. Oh, sir, he said. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him. For there are more on our side than are theirs. And then Elisha prayed, oh, Lord. Open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes. And when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. I don't, I don't just want to be living by comparison to other people. What on earth? Does living by comparison to other people have anything to do with this story? Unbelievable. Everybody's got chariots and troops summoned at your border. I do? Quick, call the army. Wait, no, the National Guard. Um, Call Dudley Do-Right in the Canadian Mounties. You got to do something about those chariots at my border. We all have troubles. We all have huge obstacles. I don't know anybody who doesn't work hard. The people in my circle of friends... So working hard is the equivalent of having chariots at my border. Huh? Probably the same as your people of friends. People are perpetually tired, worn out. We are working as hard as we can. Some of us a little bit of progress, some of us no progress, and everybody's got obstacles. So how is it I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out a way... 
so that I can somehow incorporate my faith into my everyday life in such a way that I actually see progress. I want to see measured progress, not just in my obstacles, not just in my, my victories. I want to see progress in me. What are you talking about? I want to see, I want to see something change in me so that I don't respond the same way I do all the time. By then take a class in hermeneutics at this Bible college that you're at. By getting into a dark room and staring at somebody who is less fortunate than me. I want to see with those kind of open eyes. And so if that's you, I would encourage you to take just a little advice from Elisha. Okay, can't wait to hear that. By the way, I mean... What he's just said has absolutely nothing to do with this text. You know, he started with what he wants to say, found a, a passage that was obscure enough that he could kind of, you know, allegorize it quickly. Oh yeah, do you have uh, do you have uh, chariots and soldiers at your border trying to invade? Well, hey, you just take some advice from Elijah, and 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 what does that mean? I. You, are you tired? Were you working hard? You want to make sure you're not comparing yourself to other people? Just take some advice from Elijah. The passage doesn't say anything of the sort. He's just allegorized the text rather quickly and then basically started spewing self-help slogans that kind of puff up people's ego, you know, to try to catch a person who's having a hard moment. And, of course, it's the first sermon of the year, so it's a New Year's sermon. People have made resolutions to make their lives better, and he's capitalizing on that by you know, allegorizing an obscure text and somehow making it about them. Three simple points in three consecutive verses. We begin with the first point. If you're actually going to learn to respond this way, if you're actually going to learn to, 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 to follow God in such a way that it doesn't matter what troops are amassed at what border, you aren't going to be overwhelmed by it. Number one, write it down, mark it down, put it in the front of your Bible. It's going to involve the elimination of whiners from your life. What? Look at verse 16. Verse 16 teaches that we need to eliminate whiners from our life. Really? Alas, says the young man. Elisha, like Elijah, he had a series of young men, uh, attendants, servants, helpers. And here's this young boy. They're in Dothan. And, and Elisha is asleep. But what's the boy doing? Oh, he's up early. And when he looks out and he sees that the king of Syria, the king of Aram, has gotten all these troops and all these chariots and all these horses, what's his first response? Well, like I said, the actual word there is, it's alas. Fifteen times in the Old Testament. Oh, me. What is we going to do? That's his ask. That's his question. That's exactly how he responds. Oh, Elijah. Listen to me. You're going to have to make hard decisions. The hardest one is who do you surround yourself with? Do you surround yourself? Does the text say that Elisha fired him after this? That, you know, got rid of him? Is that what verse 16 says? It doesn't say anything of the sort. Stuff with people who are people of faith, who believe that God can. Do you surround yourself? God can what? I mean, this sounds like Carlos Whitaker's uh, blog post about chase, having your dreams chase you. Good night with prayer warriors who, who, who believe that there is nothing bigger than God? Or do you surround yourself with people who are perpetual whiners? And here's the problem. 
It ain't just a saved and lost issue, is it? Some church folk are really good at whining. Every church has at least one crazy member. Y'all got more than one. Absolutely a biblical principle. You want something you can write down? Write it down. In a church as big as C3, here's how simple it is. The brighter the light, the more bugs it attracts. How is this ministering to those people? They're sitting right there. Y'all got some bugs. I'm not questioning their salvation. I'm not talking about whether they're going to be in heaven. They are born again believers in Jesus Christ. They love Jesus. I want them in heaven. I just don't want them near me. They are. So the Bible is teaching us to get rid of those people. Keep them at arm's length. Don't have anything to do with people who may be whiners or complainers. Make sure to isolate yourself from them and to make and to teach this is what God wants you to do. This text doesn't say that at all. They are perpetual whiners, and they're crazy. Dio Moody said, salvation is eternal, but stupid is forever. <laughs> this is why I became, this is why I was a horrible pastor. Because it, it, for my spiritual welfare, I have got to watch out for those people in my life. I am easily persuaded. I am a pessimist by nature. I am a cynic and a skeptic. And so if I'm not careful, I'm the first guy to go, what is we going to do? If you don't eliminate whining and whiners from your life, they take over. Don't you know that there are some people in every church? This text doesn't teach this. Who are only happy when they're miserable. They're only happy when they're sad. You ask them how they're doing and you're going to kick yourself because they're going to tell you. <laughs> Am I right? You see them coming down like, look, you know who I'm talking about. And right now, you're thinking about the crazy people in your life. And if you're not, it's you. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, you know, law of averages, right? Whiners never see God. They only see problems. They are saved, but they're miserable. Saved and stagnant. They're just hanging on to the very end of life. Oh, when the sweet by and by comes, but right now it's horrible. And no matter what you got, they are worse. And here's the problem. I'm not joking. I'm not kidding. I was a horrible pastor. I'm going to be buried in Franklin County in Wood, North Carolina at that church. Jill's daddy's going to be buried here in Princeton. Jill's mama's going to be buried here in Princeton. This is home to me. When we come from Texas, all the way from Texas, first thing I did was buy some Duke's mayonnaise. Because you can't get it. Ain't nothing better than Duke's. It's just my thing. I love coming home. But I wasn't a good pastor. And part of it was because I'm a grump. Part of it was because I don't abide. Notice he's talking about himself again. Whiners very well. And part of it's because I got a weak stomach. And y'all know that the older people get, the more they're willing to talk about what's wrong with them. <laughs> Hospital visits were a horror for me. Because like I said, when I started at that church, there was only eight people and they'd be like, oh, pastor, let me show you. It's all filled with pus. <laughs> 
That's so gross. You go to prayer meeting and you share your prayer request and somebody's got to top it. That's the whiner. What about the guy who's, you know, got the um, personal testimony that, you know, that tops everybody, including, you know, you know, studying to be a jihadist and stuff like that, you know. Oh, will you pray for my knee? Your knee? I got two bad knees. Next person, my hip, my gout. Next person, you got problems? Oh, I can't see, smell, taste, hear, or touch. Y'all pray for me. It ain't well. I ain't well. What does this have to do with the text again? Oh, yeah, it doesn't. You know what happened at my first, my absolute first prayer meeting? It would. This is horrible, but it'll illustrate what whiners can do. Woman started sharing from the second row. Her name was Dora Jane Roble. Didn't know it, but she was kin to the Guptons and the Dentons. There was only eight people there when they voted on me, and there's maybe five, six, maybe ten for Wednesday prayer meeting. Dora Jane was sitting all by herself on the second row when she stood up and she said, Preacher, start sharing a prayer request. And it's horrible. Woman's going in for brain surgery. And her husband leaves her. And I think, this is unbelievable. How am I going to get to Rocky Mountain time to maybe go before school starts? Maybe I'll go before class. And I'm trying to figure out a way to do this while I'm writing it on the board. Woman in the back stands up. Didn't know who she was, but she turned out to be Dora Jane's sister. Her name was Connie Ann Denton. And Connie Ann stood up in the back and said, Dora Jane, shut up. And I went, what? It's my first prayer meeting. I was like, uh, uh, ma'am, please let her finish. And Dora Jane didn't even flinch. She just kept talking. And Dora Jane's telling me that the woman's got kids to take care of and he's leaving her for another woman. And it was horrible. It was, I was like, man, that's horrible. And then... Connie and said, Dog Jane, if you don't shut up, I'm going to punch you. <laughs> I pulled up everything that I could in my pastor voice. Ma'am, we don't talk to people that way in God's house. And she said, Preacher, it ain't real. She's sharing from her soap opera. Dora Jane was sharing for something from a soap opera on her television in the prayer meeting, and I'm writing it down like it's a real person. Okay, I got a question. Um, what does this have to do with the text from 2 Kings, and how is this fulfilling the Great Commission? How is this helping in the discipleship of the Christians at C3 Church there? You know, don't, I, I don't have an answer to the question myself. It just seems like... This is, it's the answer is this isn't helping at all. This isn't discipleship. This isn't preaching. This isn't exegesis. This is uh, personal yarns and story time from Ergen Kaner. Really? But isn't that just like, you just waste your time on the whiners. You just, you just, if you, if you do not eliminate that from your life, alas, he said, what are we going to do? You have to get the elimination of whiners out of your life. 
Number two. The text doesn't say that. The text doesn't say eliminate the whiners from your life. Second Kings chapter 6, verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. These weren't allegorical, metaphorical chariots or metaphorical or allegorical horses or a metaphorical, allegorical army. And the servant was just basically being a whiner. Um, there were real soldiers, there were real chariots, and they were all around the city. So the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Seems like a logical question to me. I don't know about you, but you know, uh, there, that, that, this looks like a pretty dire situation. So he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha, now notice it doesn't say, he says, get away from me, you whiner. I, you crazy people, I got to keep you out of my life. That's not what it says. Elisha prays for his servant. He said, do not be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those. Uh, so those who are for us, do not be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down past him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Right to the king of Samaria. Um, yeah, nothing in this text about getting rid of the crazy people in your life or anything like that. In fact, Elisha prayed for his servant. And this was a very important miracle that took place, and it's not normative for our life. You can't allegorize this. Next verse. First words out of Elisha's mouth. Fear not. 365 times in the Bible, God says, fear not. One for every day, pretty good advice. The elimination of whiners out of your life, how about the eradication of fear from your life? Do you honestly believe God is bigger than your problem? Then you have nothing to fear. Not the bank, not your boss. Not people attacking your reputation, not people talking about you. Not, not Just believe that God's for you, you have nothing to fear. Not the bank, not your boss. This is miserable advice, and this is not what the Bible's teaching here at all. Oh, this is like the power of positive thinking. Just eliminate fear from your life and get rid of the whiners and complainers so that, yeah, these allegorical armies can attack the other allegorical armies sitting on your border. Problems in your family, not problems with family, spouses, sisters, brothers, issues, whatever you're facing. You have an altar where you lay it before God. And he, because he is your father, puts on his shoulders your provision. He won't force his way into your life. He's just waiting for you to fear not. What scares you? Uh, where does it say in this text that God's waiting for you to fear not? Oh yeah, it doesn't. He's not exegeting. He's allegorizing. What problem? The economy, economies go good and bad. God is not tied to the banks. 
or the prime interest rate. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills and not a one of them is in foreclosure. Politics? You really think politicians are going to answer the question? 2012 elections. Listen, every one of them is going to make you a thousand promises. Here's all you need to remember. You pray for the prince, but you serve your king. Princes come and go. Princes come and go. Just follow God. What scares you? It, it, this text isn't teaching this. What if it was somebody who looked different? God's called you to reach somebody, but they speak different. You got loved ones, family members, people at home that you love that aren't here. And you fear their souls in hell? Yeah, I'm with you. But even that shouldn't scare you. The word there for fear not, it actually means don't be paralyzed. Paralysis is exactly what Satan wants. Because then you ain't doing anything. Here's how you overcome it. You overcome it by fear not. God's word to you. Don't be scared. What would take a kid, a Turk, born in Stockholm, Sweden? The and now we're slipping into his testimony again. Oldest son of three boys, raised as a Sunni Muslim. Our father builds mosques. And we moved to Columbus, Ohio, where he builds the mosque on Broad Street. And I'm surrounded by you people. Right? At that time, Muslims were maybe one million. And I hate you because I was taught that you hated me back. I want nothing to do with you. The Quran teaches in Surah 5, take no friends from among the Jews and the Christians. You bring their condemnation upon you. So I didn't have friends that were Jews and I didn't have friends that were Christians. I wanted nothing to do with you. Okay, what I'd like you to do, I'm not going to play it here. Um, uh, Dr. James White, Alpha and Omega, Ministries. He's got a YouTube channel, and uh, if you go to YouTube.com, in the search there at YouTube.com, type in Ergen Kaner, E-R-G-U-N-C-A-N-E-R, -E and here's what it says, Ergen Kaner in 2006, just misstatements, question mark. Type that in. You will find a 10-minute long video of Ergen Kaner giving his testimony in 2006 and you will find there is a lot of parallels to what we're hearing now but you will also hear Ergen Kaner in his own voice giving other details that are different than what he's giving in his testimony here now so much so that this guy doesn't have any credibility at all but this is what Tom Skiles was talking about tell your story well, Ergen Kainer's telling his story, and he's embellishing it and changing details. Uh, the, the, his his story has well, well, drifting sand dunes in it, um, which tells me it's not credible. But um, is he telling the story of Jesus Christ? No, he's telling his story. This is narcissistic evangelism. On steroids, this is the pinnacle example of it. 
again, go to youtube.com, type in Ergen Kaner in 2006, just misstatements, question mark, and just compare. From about this point on in the sermon review to what's on that video, and you're going to see that they're, 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 they're similar stories, but they're factually different. I lived and died by the five pillars of Islam, and I thought that Allah, at the end of my days, might just have a little bit of mercy, and if I've got one more good than bad on my scales, then I will go to paradise. That's fear-based. That's not faith. That's fear. And at the end of the day, you make your accounting and you lie. Well, I had more good thoughts than bad thoughts. You lie. I said more good things than bad things. You lie. And this is the way I lived. And entering into high school, it's exactly what I was. I was, no questions, your biggest critic. I was your enemy. And you know what reached me for the gospel? It wasn't a guy on TV. It wasn't somebody with a purple hair crying purple tears. Or some singer or somebody who'd written books. It was one high school kid who wouldn't shut up. One kid who was never scared. Jerry Tackett hunted me. Freshman year, sophomore year, junior year. Dude, you want to come with me to fourth quarter? Dude, you want to come to fifth quarter? Want to come to the hot dog hog out, the, 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 the pizza pig out? Want to come to our church youth group meeting? Want to come roller skating? I said no a thousand different ways, and a thousand different times, and a thousand different permutations. No, 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 shut up. Leave me alone. Never shut up. He had the eyes that Elijah talked about. Greater resources do we have than all the chariots they've got. He knew his God was real, mine was fake, and all he had to do was keep hunting me down. How many of us, if we go to somebody's door or, or we share with a colleague or a friend, or you, you knock on the door and you, you, oh, God help you, if you knock on the door and you face hostility, and they slam the door in your face, most people would go, huh, well, he must not be one of the elect. I will mark him off my list, enjoy hell, <laughs> move on. Not Jerry Tackett. He kept coming. Finally, going into my senior year, I decided, you know what, I'll show you. And I went, I walked. I said, oh, I'll come, 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 I'll come. And I walked into the Stells Road Baptist Church in Columbus, Ohio, right near the airport. Both of my sons, I've taken both of my sons to the very spot where I got saved. I walked into that church and sat in the back and, 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 and did not know the Baptist secret. Baptist sit in the back. And then all of a sudden, there's like... He's not preaching a text. He hasn't told us anything about Jesus. Man, we sure have learned a lot about Ergen Kaner. Wow, yeah, that's great. Like 80 of them around me. And here's a Bible. Here's a hymnal. Do you like the Gaithers? I didn't know. I mean, if you've never been in church, you don't know. I was like, stand, sit, turn around, hug a neck, kiss a baby. It was, it was like Jesus' eyes. 
podcast, this wouldn't hold still. You know, I, I didn't, this is not, there's no singing. All the singers, I want you to hear me. There is no singing in the mosque. I teach global apologetics. I, I teach Christianity versus all the world religions. Here's something you need to know. No other religion on the planet sings out of gratitude and joy. Every other group, there's only three world religions that sing, and they do it to get the attention of their God or gods. I couldn't figure out why y'all were so happy and why you were singing. You think praise and worship and dance isn't evangelistic? You listen to me. There's no singing in the mosque. We ain't got nothing to sing about. I couldn't figure out why you guys kept singing. As soon as the service was over, he drags me to Clarence Miller. And Clarence Miller, my pastor. Boy, what do you think about Jesus? And I explained, oh, I respect Isa. And I go on to my little Islamic discussions. And he says, yeah, that's great. You can't respect Jesus. He said he was God. If he said he was God, he either was or he wasn't. If he said he was God and he wasn't, tons of people have done that. They're deluded, they're insane, they're high, they got glow sticks and pacifiers and a meth lab in their car. They don't deserve your respect. If they think they're God, but they ain't, they deserve your pity. But if he said he was God, and he was, and he is, then he deserves more than your respect. And he explained to me that Jesus on the cross shed his blood for me. Now we get the gospel nugget. Yeah, it's an obligatory part of the evangelistic pitch. A mention, an honorable mention of the cross. And that's about the only thing we've really learned about Jesus, isn't it? See, Islam teaches we believe in blood. We just believe our blood buys our forgiveness. I found out that my blood was, was not needed. If I may say it this way... Jesus strapped himself to a cross so I wouldn't have to strap a bum to myself. Uh, um, yeah, likening Jesus' crucifixion to a suicide bombing, I don't think that that's a accurate at all theological picture of the atonement. It fits his story about his life, though, doesn't it? You understand what that means to 1.6 billion people? 1.6 billion. And with the exception of one sect, all of them know jihad is holy war. Jihad al-Askar, high jihad and low jihad. I lasted four days. I got saved sitting on the second row because then nobody was around me. Walked to the front. I didn't know what an invitation was. I didn't know. I didn't know what an invitation You know, you sing 842 verses of just as I am. I didn't know any of that. I just stood there and Clarence looked down and he said, what? And I said, I want Jesus. And he spun me around. He led me to Jesus. I don't live by scales. I live by the cross. And I have nothing to fear. He's the God. Yes, it's true. Jesus is God. It's true, he died on the cross for our sins. That's all fine and good. But this sermon's about Eric and Caner. It's not about Jesus. That's about the only thing we've learned about Jesus. But we've we've learned about Eric and Caner's television habits, likes and dislikes, why he likes particular shows. Um, 
we've learned about his early life. Um, you know, we've learned about uh, his experience with this kid from high school. We've learned about his experience as a young pastor. You know, we've and some of the gory details too. And um, boy, we've learned a lot about. He's done a fine job of telling his story. This isn't evangelism. This is telling his story. And this is what a lot of people think evangelism is. It's not. Evangelism is telling the story of Jesus. The four Gospels are about Christ. They're not about the authors who penned them. Matthew is not about Matthew. Mark is not about Mark. Luke is not about Luke. And John is certainly not about John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all about Jesus. When the apostles would go out and evangelize, they would tell everybody about Jesus, not themselves. We've got a big problem here. We ain't got time. We ain't got time. We got to go. But really quick, a year later, I'm disowned. A year later, I'm studying for the ministry. I lose my family, and I find out that my church is my family. Both my brothers got saved. All three. All three. All three boys. All three boys. Born again, blood-bought, believers in Jesus. My mom got saved nine years later. My grandma 13 years later. Now listen. My grandma got saved, and she is buried 24 miles from this point right here. Never learned a word of English, but she found Jesus in the South. What's too big for you? Last point, I'm going to shut up and sit down. <laughs> Elimination of the whiners, eradication of fear, and a revelation of hope. What did Elisha pray? Open his eyes. But his eyes were already open. He could already see. He couldn't see, see. You need to ask God for a revelation that he lets you see with, see with eyes of faith. He saw the chariots and the troops earlier. After God opened his eyes, he saw the chariots of fire. And if those words mean something to you, it's because 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah had a fiery chariot come and take him home. Now in 2 Kings 6, Elisha sees fiery chariots for his protection. What's your chariot? That's... What's your chariot? Oh, give me a break. I don't, I, huh? This moment. God has a rescue planned. God has a fiery chariot for you. Really? Yeah, the text doesn't say that at all. This is your altar. You either cue sappy music. Either take your fears home and put them back in your car and back in your heart, or you lay them here and you say, I'm done. You, you either take the names of those people that you love and lay them at an altar and say, God, I will not quit and I will not shut up and I will not fear and they can make fun of me a thousand times and tell me no a million times. I'm not giving up on them. Or you can give in to fear. I don't want to live by comparison to dog. I want to be living in comparison to the, the, the design that God has for me. I want to be the me he destined me to be and he wants the same in your life. I want to be the me he destined me to be. Really, that's what Second uh, Kings chapter 6 is about, is being the me that God destined you to be. It doesn't say any of this stuff in the text. 
he just made all of that up. So what you gonna do about it? Alas, what is we gonna do? Or are you gonna ask God to give you a revelation? So you can see the chariots he's already got amassed on your border, ready to bring you home. He's got your rescue. This is like the chariots on your border prayer, you know, something like that. You know? He's got your finances. He's got your family. He's the only living. This text has nothing to do with your finances or your family or anything like that. Living God. And he's got a chariot for you. But he's not going to force you. The text doesn't say anything of that. Open your eyes or not. Doesn't it sound more spiritual and like like he's really telling us the Bible truth because of the sappy music behind him? I hope you decide to make it real. Ask him to help you see with eyes of faith. Lay it at his feet. Watch him do his business. Thanks for listening. Done. So that is the pinnacle example of narcissistic evangelism, telling your story. Now, granted, Jesus made a cameo appearance. We got to hear that Jesus is God. That's true. And that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, shed his blood for us. Oh, yes, that's absolutely true. But the rest of the time was spent talking about Ergen Kaner. This wasn't Christian. This wasn't evangelism. This wasn't a sermon. This was a Bible twisting. It was narcissistic from beginning to end. And people think that this is what Christianity is about. Them. It's not. Christianity is about what Jesus has done for you and believing it. Repenting of your sins and being forgiven them by Jesus' shed blood on the cross. That's the gospel message that needs to be preached into your ears and mine Sunday after Sunday. Discipling, according to what Jesus gives instructions on in Matthew 28, requires somebody to actually teach everything that he's taught. That would require them to open up a Bible and correctly exegete a passage so that the pastor is teaching the thoughts recorded in Scripture, the doctrines recorded in Scripture, in Scripture, so that the disciple is learning them and understanding them and having their mind transformed and renewed by them. There was no discipleship in this sermon. There was no evangelism in this sermon. None, because God's Word wasn't correctly taught. As a result of it, we learned a lot about Ergen Kainer, but really, truly, nothing about Christ and his word, except for that he's God and he died on the cross for our sins. Which, I mean, yeah, those are that's the central message of Christianity, yeah. But that was just a sub-point to the major point. The major point was all about Ergen. And unfortunately, these are not isolated instances. This is what's really going on in the greater body of Christ, and it's wrong. 
and it needs to stop. We need to call people like this to repentance. All right. Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. This is listener-supported radio. Visit our website, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons, and support us. And if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Thank you.